All right, so Hebrews chapter 12, we'll start in verse 18 and read through verse 24 and then jump in. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we come out of uh, the lesson from last week. We come out of some admonitions to uh, be faithful to the Lord, to not uh, decry the Lord's discipline, um, to not be like Esau. And then the author of Hebrews enters into uh, a pictorial summary appeal. Um, So this is kind of a a summary of a lot of what he's been saying throughout Hebrews, right? He has been admonishing and challenging the... uh, the people he's writing to, um, to not leave uh, Christ for the Old Covenant, right? To not go back to the Old Testament and to the Old Law. Uh, but he's saying to, to remember that Christ is better, to stay in Christ, um, and to not apostatize. And so this is kind of a summary picture of what he has been saying all along. And I say picture because he is really painting a word picture here to get them to to visualize and remember what the Old Covenant entailed. Um, And it's quite effective. Um, It's also a good reminder to us. Um, We can view the past in a false way because of our present difficulties or our present emotions. We can view the past in a false way because of our present difficulties or, or emotions. Um, back in Exodus 1, when the Israelites are in Egypt, it says that the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. This is Exodus 1, verses 13 to 14. And made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then we come into Exodus 2, and it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And then obviously God you know, sends Moses, and the whole Exodus starts. Numbers 11. Uh, not very long after they left Egypt. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. So they were all socialists. Um, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Their their present difficulties in the wilderness, eating God-provided food, which is a perceived difficulty. It's not an actual difficulty. That's a blessing, right? But but their, their present difficulties and emotions cause them to look back at Egypt and see it in a completely false way. 
Right? Because you go back to Exodus 1 and 2, and they were ruthlessly made to work as slaves, but they don't remember that when they're in the wilderness. Right? So this is something that, that it's possible for us to do. Uh, I'll bet all of us have at some point done this. Right? If you're going through a, a time of suffering as a Christian, you might be tempted to think that you know, life without Christ, uh, life just as a uh, everyday sinner in the world would be better. Um, that is a temptation that we can encounter. Um, maybe if you know a marriage is in a tough spot, one or two of the spouses can think back to a previous relationship and think that that would have been better if they had married that person. right? And when you do that, you're forgetting all of the difficulties and problems from that previous time. Right? I think it's, it's kind of summed up in the phrase we all know and probably use, the good old days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Life was far better 50 years ago. We didn't have all these problems that we have today. Right? It's, it's not as true as, as we think it is. Uh, maybe a, a teenager, you know, is frustrated with what they see as a lot of difficulties at home and they think to themselves, life would be better if I was on my own. Right? And sometimes the wise parent says, okay, go. <laughs> go, because they know. Um, or maybe you've had a difficulty in a church and you hear about this next church or this church in the next town over that's it's, from everything you hear, it's got to be amazing and it's going to clearly be far better than the church you're in. Um, right, right. Our present <coughs> difficulties can skew our perspective on another situation. So the point of this passage in Hebrews is to remind the readers the reality of what they are wanting to go back to. Right, because their their current difficulties in in current temptations are skewing their view of the Old Testament and view of of what they have now versus what they had then. Um, and it's just a good reminder to us that biblical truth must always guide us. Right? And truth must always inform our perspective. Right? And this, this would help us to not skew a situation or think it is better than it actually is. Um, this is so important because as, as pertains to Christ and the new covenant, there has never been there is not right now and there never will be a better option. And that doesn't change no matter how hard the Christian life gets. It doesn't change no matter what persecution looks like. It doesn't change no matter how many friends and family members you lose. There is never a better option than staying with Christ. Right? But the Hebrew believers that are being written to are being tempted to go back. Um, so this is, this is good truth for them and it's also a good reminder for us when we struggle and our vision is blurry. Um, if that is the case, we have forgotten the glories of life in Christ. And so the, the picture that is given here is a wonderful visual reminder right, of who Christ is, of what we have in Him, and then also of, of what you lacked in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Um, and so that's where we start. We start in verse 18 with what was actually entailed in Mount Sinai in the Old Covenant. Um, and it's not he's not disparaging the Old Covenant. It was exactly what it was intended to be. Um, but it's a great reminder that it was lesser than what we have in Christ. So let's read 18 to 21 again. 
Because if the believers remembered this, they'd be far less tempted to go back to this. Right? And so the, the writer brings this before their eyes so they remember it. For you have not come to what may be touched. And what may be touched is what they had in the Old Testament. right? A physical mountain they came to at Mount Sinai. That's what he goes on to describe. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure what was being well, the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said i tremble with fear sinai was terrifying if you want to turn back to exodus 19 we can read a couple of sections that describe exactly what is being referenced here in Hebrews. <clears throat> Sinai was terrifying and rightly so. Why should Sinai have been so terrifying to all the Israelites? You couldn't touch it. Or you'd be okay. Imminent death? That is a frightful yeah. proposition. Well, they were warned. Anybody that came near and uh, touched it would be shot through with arrows. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a, a strong prohibition. Um, sort of in contrast to the way God had dealt with it before because he brought them out of Egypt. And, and um, I think they may have had an incomplete understanding of God. Uh, this sort of still started to go about mm-hmm. what, what makes it so terrifying for even us, though, if, if we were an Israelite back in the day, why would we be so terrified? Certainly it was physically and visually terrifying, um, but, but where does that terror come from? I think a lot of it has to do with fear and, and things like prejudice has to do with just being an unknown. There was no access to God. The only access that they had was through the high priest, and so they didn't really know God in a way that we could and can know Jesus. You can know God fully and be terrified of Him if something is not right. Yeah. Um, because the presence of a holy, just God was, mm-hmm. was there on the mountain. Yeah. They wretched Right. That's the source of the terror. And that's a very appropriate terror. Right. That is a right terror. God intended <coughs> on Mount Sinai to absolutely frighten the Israelites. Right. Um, he knew what a, his holy presence meant for sinners. Um, and, and, and in Deuteronomy, um, we'll come to that in a second, but um, in Exodus 19, this is describing the, the encounter, starting in verse 16. It says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. If you can... Picture yourself there. Um, it would be absolutely terrifying. In 
In Deuteronomy 5, this is Moses recounting that encounter. Starting in verse 24, this is the Israelites' response to seeing God. They say, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and still lived? And so they tell Moses in verse 27, Go near and hear all the Lord our God will say, and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. Verse 28 is incredible. When the Lord heard your words... And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of all these people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Right. That is a wonderful statement. God recognizes that the Israelites will forget how great He is, how glorious He is, how holy He is, how worthy of fear and reverence and awe He is, and therefore they will then fall into sin right, when they start to treat God with, with contempt. Um, there's an aspect of the fear of God that is right. Um, and we just In youth group, we're going through First Peter, and we just studied this passage where first, in, in chapter 1, verse 17, Peter says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each other's deed, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Um, and there is a very true aspect to us fearing God rightly. Um, and, and not to reduce fear to just reverence. Um, we ought not to overemphasize reverence at the expense of fear. Because then reverence can lose its, its sanctifying effect. Right? There's a true aspect of actually fearing this God. Um, because of who He is. Right? Because of His great power. Because of His glorious majesty. And because of who we are in the presence of such greatness. There's a, there's a very good aspect to that fear. I think of it as we need to, be realize, we, need to realize we should never try to what God has said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a great great point. Um, but we also have to remember that fear isn't to be overemphasized to the point of terror. Right? And that's where the balance of God's love and His mercy and grace comes in. Right? But we don't want to lose a right fear of Him and approach Him with a casual just buddy-buddy. Um, you know, that, that is not how a creature approaches his glorious creator. Um, and so the love of the Father is not to be minimized or eliminated, but that is also not to be overemphasized to the point of a, a sinful casualness with God. Right? The love of God drives out any debilitating fear that we might have. Right, the grace of God allows us to come boldly, but we don't lose a right fear of this holy God. Um, a good example would be a if you had to get brain surgery, 
you want to probably go to one a surgeon who has done hundreds of those surgeries. Um, but even if that surgeon has done hundreds of surgeries, you also want to go to a surgeon that has some some good fear in what he is doing or, or she is doing. Right? You don't want to go to the surgeon that is completely casual because they are just like and nonchalant because oh I've done this a bunch and we'll just go in there and it's going to be okay. Right? <laughs> right? You want the surgeon to understand that he is dealing with a serious, solemn matter. Right? And, and any misstep, any false hand movement creates a great problem. Right? And so that kind of a fear is a really good, healthy fear. Right? It's not a debilitating fear. Right? There's boldness, there's confidence, but there is a right fear because of a solemn, serious matter that they are engaging with. Right? And so we come to God knowing His love, but recognizing that as Christians, every day, we are engaging in serious, weighty matters right? that are of eternal importance. And so we do that with a right fear of the God who, who judges and who loves us. You know, I think going back to what you just said and then also going back to the, the whole idea of, of their miscontent with, the, with manna and, and looking back to what they had, the problem is, is that their timeline's not long enough. They're not mm-hmm. looking far enough down the timeline. They're mm-hmm. looking, my belly's hungry now. We had meat a week ago. Come on, man. Mm-hmm. But they're not stopping and going, wait a second. The God that like spoke this universe into existence is like literally raining food yeah. on us. And he's thinking about us to at least do that. What's going to happen next? Like, if he can do that, but they're not thinking like that. They're mm-hmm. just like, oh, my stomach. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and we can do the same thing. Like, yeah. something that hurts right now, if you extrapolate that out, surgery's terrible. Two years from surgery is great. And, and it's the problem yeah. with timeline. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to say the same thing. It's having the, the longer perspective that sees not only what the consequences of our actions can be. But, you know, if we have options, and that's tough, because mm-hmm. sometimes you can't, uh, you can't see what's going to happen, yeah. but you can kind of, you have to make a decision based on the information you have at the time. Yeah. Um, we're going to move on here, because I'm going to shortchange the end of the lesson if I don't, and I'm bad at that. So, we're going to keep moving. Um, the point here, though, in, in this passage, um, is not the right fear of God that we ought to have. The point is the crippling fear the Israelites experienced because um, they were a sinful people approaching a holy God in the Old Covenant. Um, And so that is what is described here and highlighted about Mount Sinai. That's the picture that they need to remember as they want to go back to this Old Covenant. Um, They need to remember that it was, like he says here, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom. What a word to describe that encounter. A tempest and a trumpet and a voice that made you beg that the voice stop talking. They couldn't even endure the order. Um, Ignorant animals had to die. Like an animal wouldn't know the the command. An animal wouldn't understand. And even that animal had to be killed if it touched the mountain. And so it just created this, this, this holy awe of such a moment in such a place. So, 
if an animal was stoned, how much greater the peril for a human who understood the command for the holiness of this divine God. Right? Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses. And he went up the mountain. This is a imposing, foreboding, frightening moment. Everything visual, audible, like everything brought fear into the hearts of the Israelites. One of the commentators I read said, uh, just an excellent comment as, as the author of Hebrews writes this. He said, the listeners to this letter experience a whirlwind of descriptive elements as the author lists item after item, giving the impression that many more could be added. Ironically, however, God remains hidden. And that was the other part of, of Sinai. God was hidden to the Israelites. Like his presence was on the mountain, but what they saw what was the tempest. They saw the smoke. They saw the fire, right? They didn't see, like Moses did, God. And so that was the other part of this covenant, is the covenant did not reveal God to the fullest. And so when you read this, or you hear this, you're reminded of the truth of the old covenant. And the author is doing this because the readers are tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. And so he brings the truth before their eyes and says, look, this is what you want to go back to. How can you? How can you? Because, And you need to see this because you're forgetting what the Old Covenant entailed. And so you must stop and realize that in Christ you have not come to this Old Testament scene. You have come to something so much better through faith and salvation. And so he, he paints this picture and then he contrasts it with what the believers have come to in Christ. All right, so let's go to verse 22 and, and see the contrast once again. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Just just right off the top, what are the big differences you notice in these two pictures that are painted? They had to stand at the bottom of the mount. They couldn't touch the mount. Mm. They they were at a distance from this God who was high, holy, uh, separate from them. Mm -hmm. And and now here we are brought into the very presence of God in in all that's embraced in these couple of verses here. Mm -hmm. It's It's almost like a welcoming party and then you get in the door and like, wow, look who yeah. I'm with. Yeah. Angel with the church of the firstborn, with God the judge of all, with Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. Man, what a uh, <laughs> environment. Yeah. Amen. Kind of like the difference between like, God above us versus God like right alongside of us. Mm-hmm. 
But how do we actually transcend to this point? I mean, is this is something that has to be realized? It says, we have come. Well, I'm, my feet are still on the ground. Explain that to us. It, very simply, we are united with Christ. Right? And so, therefore, we are currently in Him, in eternity, in the heavenlies. Um, and, and so, it's a, a promised reality that is not yet fully realized. Right? You know, once we come to faith in Christ, we are basically entering the kingdom of God on earth. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much where it starts. And it just gets better and better and better yeah. once we are with God. Yeah. Yeah, we we start to experience more of those realities that we are we currently possess in Christ. Right? We possess all of this without fully experiencing all of it yet. the The two pictures are just such a stark, beautiful contrast. And the obvious point is, choose number two, right? Stay in Christ. The second is greater than the first, and you can literally see it. There's a little bit of an irony here. You come to a mountain that you can't come and touch it physically, but you can touch it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So let's work through some of these glories that he paints in verse 22 to 24. First one is Mount Zion. Right? Mount Zion is the city of who in the Old Testament? The city of the great king. First one being? David. Right, the city of David. He goes and he captures Jerusalem, right in in Second uh, Samuel, and then it is called the stronghold of Zion. Right, the city of David. Uh, these are all synonymous names for Jerusalem, um, and you start to see throughout the Old Testament it take on a, a significance more than just the place where David ruled from and the place where you know Israel's kings resided. Um, in Psalm eighty-seven. It says in verse 1, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Um, and as you get into the New Testament, um, as, as we come into Hebrews, um, if you go to Hebrews, turn back one chapter from chapter 12 over at to chapter 11, um, and you look at verse 16, talking about the saints of old, it says, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Um, and then when we compare that with Revelation, chapter 14, we start to see this, this terminology of Zion picked up as describing the city that God is preparing for his people. Revelation 14 verse 1 it says I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads right? and so this this imagery starts in the Old Testament and is picked up and carried through the New Testament and it's the the final city that we look forward to right? the, the final throne location of, of God and of his rule um, and so coming to Mount Zion when when a, a believer in the New Testament hears this, they pick up all that imagery right, and know that this is the ruling place of the one who came to sit on David's throne. Right? It's, it's the ruling place of Christ who sits on the, that throne eternally. 
Um, and so we are coming into the presence of our King. Right? That is what Mount Zion represents. And it's not Mount Sinai. Right? The, the beautiful thing we can compare is Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. Right? And Mount Zion is a place of the gracious rule of the King. Right? Not the place where the holy law that a sinner cannot keep is given. But it's rather the place of Christ's gracious rule where he's ruling victoriously and forever. Another good quote from uh, Philip Hughes. He said, The Mount Sinai symbolizes not only the Mosaic law-giving and the institution of the Aaronic priesthood, but also the wanderings, the non-arrival of that generation which was under the cloud of condemnation because of its infidelity and ingratitude and which perished in the wilderness. Whereas Mount Zion symbolizes the establishment of the unique and everlasting priesthood of Christ, the fulfillment in Him of all the promises of the new covenant, the end of wandering, and the entry into the eternal rest prepared for the people of God. And that's a beautiful contrast. And obviously, if you have come to Zion, you don't want to go back to Sinai. You don't want to return to Sinai. Could we describe it also as like punishment and judgment, forgiveness and grace, and, and those good things that we see come forward more in the New Testament? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we want to remember also that Sinai was a gracious gift of God's. Right, He's revealing Himself to His people. Um, but you're right in the sense that. It did not, the law and God revealing Himself in that way was not able to change the heart. Right? And that's the point of the old law to show the wickedness of the people and point them to their need for a Savior. Uh, because the law cannot change the heart. Um, so it ended up being. Yeah, it ended up being a place of judgment because of that. So. <clears throat> Second, we have come to the city of the living God. Again, the city that Abraham looked forward to, along with others. If you flip back to Hebrews 3, verse 12, we have come to the city of the living God. In Hebrews 3:12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. If you go to Hebrews 10, you can see we're picking up a phrase here. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so when you see this term used, the living God, throughout Hebrews, it's previously connected to the, kind of the, the fearfulness that we ought to have for this living God. Right? Knowing He is God. What verse is that? Uh, Hebrews 10.31, sorry. Um, yeah. He is the God who is alive, who is real, and he's holy. But to say in Hebrews 12 that we have come to the city of the living God, there is implied in that we have also gained entrance to that city. Right? And so for us, it is not any longer fearful to fall into the hands of this living God. He is still that same living, holy God. But we now can come into his city with great joy. And so it's, he's the one we need He's the one that we have to 
come before him, but now we get to enter his city with joy. And the difference is immediate. Yeah. That's, that's made all the difference. Yeah. Um, and again, in, in complete contrast to Sinai, we get to enter into his presence. Right? We are not just standing outside, but we are actually entering into his presence, accepted and joyful because of it. The heavenly Jerusalem is next. What is so better about the heavenly Jerusalem? It's eternal. It's a reward. Yeah. Perfection. Yeah. Galatians 4 says that the Jerusalem that is above is the mother of us all. Mm hmm. And the Jerusalem that is below is in bondage with her children. Yeah. Very simply, it's not the earthly Jerusalem. <laughs> right? Whatever is here is lesser than what is awaiting us in heaven. And, and in Christ, we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You start to see... Because when you talk about Mount Zion, when you talk about Jerusalem... You start to see the author of Hebrews dismantling all these things that a Jew would value highly on this earth. Right? And pointing them to something far greater. Right? Like he's been doing for the entirety of the, of the book. We have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Uh, festal. Does anybody ever use that word in common language? <laughs> right? the yeah. It basically means festive, right? A, a kind of a, a party type atmosphere. Right? There's a feast happening um, at this place in a sense. Um, but in this context, we find the angels in worship of their Lord, right? Adoring God in this gathering, right? It's a joyous occasion. Um, to, to give it a little more of a word picture, you can go to Revelation 5. And we're, we're brought in by John to this, this scene. Starting in verse 11, he says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Right, the, the great scene of worship. And the author of Hebrews says, this is what we are entering into. And the, this joy, this glorious joy, stands in stark contrast to the Israelites' response to Moses on Mount Sinai. They told Moses, tell God to stop talking because we cannot bear it. And instead here, we enter in to this place of glad worship. I've um, been a Christian long enough to kind of assess 
um, the kind of Christians that I've you know been friends with and contact with over the decades and uh, I can't say the majority of Christians have this heavenly mindset how do we get there it's a question that really has if you get there then all the problems shed away mm-hmm. or at least to the degree where we're so heavenly minded we're not self minded yeah. Yeah. I've met a lot of Christians that just don't have that perspective just a suggestion mm-hmm. um Elisha, remember, was in an environment where um, he was surrounded with the enemy, mm. oodles of them, and his servant, was his name, Dothan, I think, was mm. fearful of uh, such a host that were really coming to capture them. And then uh, Elisha prays for him yeah. that the Lord would open his eyes. Mm-hmm. So what was there, he couldn't see until the Lord opened his eyes. And then he said, wow, I see a heavenly host far greater than what the enemy is. Mm-hmm. And you know, just like yeah. Balaam's eyes, he didn't see the angel that was before him. Um, Hebrews says, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Moses, who says, endure mm. seeing him who is invisible. Mm. That, that's a Every Tuesday night, seven to nine. Yeah, you just got to be twelve to eighteen years old. Um, one thing that reminds me or one thing I'm reminded of when you ask that question is Hebrews 10.24 let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near Um, there's that future eschatological perspective that you bring into that encouragement of one another. Um, you know, we encourage each other as we see the day drawing near. Right? Um, probably the best thing for myself is to take a passage like this in Hebrews 12 and just meditate on verses 22 through 24. Right? And just spend time thinking through the glorious truths that are contained there. Um, it's one of the reasons I enjoy prepping for lessons and studies. I get to, it's like forced meditation. You, know? <laughs> you have to prep for the lesson so you can teach it. And, and while that's happening, you're, you're being able to, to, to meditate and worship because of what you're learning. Um, yeah. I was commenting on what Tom was saying about how so many Christians don't have this, this joy and expectancy of heaven and in, on earth and uh, like we were, we were talking about this uh, last night and the desire to follow rules and this mm. is exactly what the author of Hebrews is talking about right here like don't go back to this this rule law laden um, lifestyle that you have and as 
coming from a very legalistic background, it's so easy to lose your joy in God mm-hmm. as we are following a list of things instead of just reveling in who God is. Um, yeah. Um, but that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's like, yeah. look at who God is and just be grateful of that and rejoice in that. And, um, and then that's just going to outpour into your lifestyle. I was at a talk by D.A. Carson at Gordon um, some years ago. And somebody asked a question about, um, you know, when I'm studying and, you know, for school or for preaching or, or teaching, um, what should be the kind of like the split between my study time and my personal devotion worship time? And Carson was like, um, why is there a difference? Why, why are you splitting those up? Um, and I thought it was just a great answer. Um, because there's not a, oh, I'm going to study the Bible time now, and it's very academic, and I'm just prepping, and now I'm going to go worship you know, by reading my Bible. and it, There's not a separation between the two. Um, so that might help us as well. We've also come in verse 23 to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn. This is Old Testament saints. This is New Testament saints. This is everyone included in Christ. And we have to be in Christ to be called firstborn. Right? Because He is the firstborn. Right? He is, uh, as one commentator said, the firstborn par excellence. Um, I don't really know what that means, but it sounds good. And uh, that's why you read commentaries, because you pick up phrases that sound good. Um, but Christ by saving us, right, joins us to Himself, right, calls us His brothers and sisters, in order that, as, as Romans says, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? And so we are joined into that, and then therefore we are, in Him, the firstborn as well. Right? And so this assembly is the assembly of the firstborn. Enrolled in heaven. Um, I by no means read Greek, but which is another good reason to have a good commentary um, from somebody who does read Greek. But there was a great comedy made about this this verb enrolled in heaven, um, and the commentary said that the the verb form is the perfect participle, which emphasizes the permanence of the inscription. Right? It, it is a permanent enrollment in heaven. Like the book of Ezra makes a big thing about those who could function as a priest and they had, their names had to be enrolled in a genealogy that traced their heritage mm. back to that particular tribe mm. or else they couldn't function, they couldn't yeah. be allowed. Yet with us, we are enrolled. We mm. are registered there. We're mm. in the genealogy, if you will, of those who belong to this yeah. heavenly scene. Amen. So, there's also, I think, a contrast between Israel as like the firstborn of, yeah. like, the earthly firstborn of the nations, and then us as believers is a true firstborn, a spiritual firstborn. Yeah. Yeah. And and that that's definitely imagery picked up from the Old Testament because the Israelites were always called the firstborn, right? You know, a child of God. You know, God treated that nation as His firstborn. Um, but the true spiritual firstborn children are those believers from the Old Testament and then also believers in the New. The next uh, description that, uh, or the next 
phrase is, we have also come to God, the judge of all. And, and we are in the midst of a joyous passage, and it, it almost seems a bit odd to drop in a reminder that God is the judge of all. Um, but I think it's helpful. And I think it lends authenticity to this, this scene that is being painted in heaven. Uh, because there's a great reminder here that the God that we come to is the same God that came down on Mount Sinai. And He has not changed. Um, he is still the one who judges. You know, so you know, it's a good reminder because we don't want to be accused, as some in our culture do accuse, of being, you know, having a God that is, has split personalities or, you know, having an Old Testament God and then a New Testament God. Um, that is not our God. Right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed since Sinai. He is still the God that we must come before as our judge. And that's the joyous reminder in this scene. We are coming before this judge, which means that he has accepted us. Right? He hasn't lost his judging capabilities in order to accept us. He still is the judge, and he's accepted his people. Right? And that is glorious and beautiful. Uh, Hebrews has picked up a couple times throughout um, in chapter 6 and also in chapter 10 this idea of judgment and then the expectation of a positive outcome to that judgment. Right? In Hebrews 6 it says that it, after that warning passage he says, but in your case we feel sure of better things. Right? Or, or in Hebrews 10 we are not of those who lose our faith but we are rather those who have who preserve, who have faith and preserve our souls. Right? There is this, this joyful expectation that your faith will remain. Um, and so when we come to this passage, we are entering in to the presence of the judge. And he has accepted us. We also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Um, very similar to the assembly of the firstborn, but it's a, I think, specific reference to those who have died in Christ from the Old Testament. Um, because the writer is writing at a time when the majority, vast majority of believers were Old Testament believers. Right? This is written um, in the first century. And what's fascinating about this is if you want to go back to the Old Covenant... If you want to go back to Abraham and Moses and, and all of those believers of the Old Covenant and the way they lived, it's as if they're not there anymore. Right? You want to go back to the Old, but all of the believers you look up to in the Old, they left for the New. Because they're in this assembly. They are also in Christ. Right? And so you're going back to something that has been emptied, as it were. And, and, and so there's nothing left to go back to. It has all been fulfilled and brought into right, the new covenant. It's been consummated in Christ. So what are you doing going back? Right? It's a work, by the way, that shows that the spirit of a human being, a redeemed person, lives on after they die mm -hmm. consciously in heaven with the Lord. Yeah even though their bodies are asleep in, asleep in the grave. Yeah. Amen. It's important to understand that. Amen. 
And we've also come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The first one being obsolete. Christ being the perfect mediator that brings the fully adequate and sufficient covenant that saves souls. And then we'll come to this last phrase, which is the most interesting phrase that I found in looking at this passage. We've also come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The the vast majority of what I read um, takes this phrase to mean that Abel's blood, um, when slain by Cain, cried out from the ground and cried out for justice, for retribution. Um, Genesis 4.10, God says to Cain, the the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Um, And so that that contrast is is set up here between the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word, a better word than the blood of Abel. And so you, you think back to Abel's blood crying out from the ground, justice, retribution, pay for the sin that was done to me. Right? Um, at a moment in history that just exemplifies the depravity of sin. The contrast is that the sprinkled blood, which is Christ's blood, cries out something different, speaks something different. Christ's blood cries for mercy, for pardon, and for acceptance. Sin demands punishment. And so when Abel died, there was a demand that was left from his, from his death because it was a, a sin committed against him. And so therefore, justice was not, or justice needed to be satisfied. Hendrickson says, the blood of Abel called for revenge and God placed a curse upon Cain for killing his brother Abel. The blood of Christ removed the curse placed upon fallen man and effected reconciliation and peace between God and man. Abel's blood is the blood of a martyr that evokes revenge. The blood of Jesus is the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was interesting because I'm not sure that's what the text means. Um, everything I just said is very true. And all of those statements can be uttered about Abel's blood and about Christ's blood. Um, and so, and many commentators say it, and you would be right to compare those two in that way. I'm just not sure that's what the text is saying. Um, and there's, there's one commentator I read that brought this out and got me to thinking, and I think he makes some good points. So I'll just present that because it's uh, interesting. And we always ought to... We always ought to dig into what the Scripture says um, and not just follow a certain interpretation because it's exciting. Um, I'll be honest, I came to this passage knowing I was going to teach and I read it and I was like, sweet, I get to talk about Christ's blood and Abel's blood and it's going to be a great you know, contrast. Um, and I was excited about that, but I, I don't want to teach that just because I'm excited about it. Right? I want to teach what the text most accurately says. Um, so this is the, the other side of it. Um, the text actually reads, we have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Um, the blood of Abel is a 
interpreter's edition because that's what seems to be being compared. Um, so when you look at the, the original languages, the blood, uh, the blood of is not there. Um, so it literally just says, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. And so the question is, what does Abel speak? Um, and speak is an important word because Abel's blood doesn't speak, but it cries out. There's a difference there. And if we go back to Hebrews 11, we find reference to Abel speaking. But it's not his blood that speaks. Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so if if the author of Hebrews references Abel speaking in a previous passage, and then he says Abel speaking again in a later passage, um, we would just be wise to connect those two and to compare them and learn from those two. Um, And so we find out from there that what is speaking is Abel's faith. And so the allusion seems to be to Abel's faithful offering of a sacrifice and God commending it rather than his death and his blood crying out from the ground. Um, I'm not going to lie, I don't know perfectly whether or not one of these two understandings is correct, but I think this one is extremely valid. I lean towards this one. Um, so at the very least, it's worth talking about. It's, it uh, fits the context of um, the New Jerusalem, Zion city that God built the hope that we have in that, focusing our faith on that. Yeah. It does fit that. Yeah. And we've also been coming out of, you know, chapter 11 where he mentions all of these Old Testament faithful saints um, and the call is to be faithful to the Lord and to persevere. So Abel's speaking is, is more so concerning a faith that is pleasing to God. But the sprinkled blood speaks better than Abel. Which is the interesting contrast. And so, if you look also at Abel as kind of a, a a bookend to redemptive history, even Christ does this. He says to the Jews, "You're the blood of Abel to Zechariah is going to come on you." And so, those two are kind of treated as faithful bookends to the Old Testament. And so, if we also look at it that way, thinking also about all of the people in Hebrews 11, um, and, and being reminded of all these righteous people that went before us kind of drawing our attention to the whole of redemptive history, I think it's a reminder that their faithfulness can do nothing for us. Right? And as we look back at their example and see good things and learn good things, their faithfulness to God doesn't save us. Mm. and then rose again and and the better word that the sprinkled blood speaks is that this can save you and you must be covered in this and this over and above all of redemptive history from Abel to to now speaks a better word because it actually comes and saves your souls right and washes you clean and cleanses you completely Um, so I think that might be a better way of seeing that comparison um, but, but there's there's good truth in both 
there's also a contrast too, which is critical blood vessel that live in the old is critical right Yeah. Amen. Um, so there's a lot there, and it's, it's, it can be fairly interesting to study. But just to close, what do we tend to leave Christ for? For what do we leave Christ? And I want to mention this because it's so easy to say, yeah, we're not going to go back to the Old Testament. But do we leave Christ at times for the sake of popularity? Or the approval of family and friends? Do we leave Christ perhaps for a relationship? Do we leave it for some pet peeve of ours that is just really just a selfish desire and, and we're not going to respond the Christ-like way because this is a pet peeve of ours? Um, do we leave Christ for some cultural pressures? Our fight against sin... Our fight to stay faithful to our Savior is always more successful when we have something better to desire. And that's what the author of Hebrews gives us here. Um, so it's a great encouragement to us to see that, pursue it, and be reminded of it. So let's close in prayer. Father, it is so good to be here in your word this morning. Um, Father, quite simply, we need to rest in these truths, meditate on them, and remember where you have brought us, remember what we have in Christ, and to value him above everything, um, and to never leave him for anything. Father, we need your help in that, because we are prone to wander, and it's so easy. So, Father, draw us unto yourself with great joyful reminders, like this text, um, of what we have in you, and may we desire that, and desire you above all things. In the name of Christ, amen.